0: New Defaults was published on Tuesday, January 5th, 2021. One of the most well-known papers in behavioral economics is The Power of Suggestion, Inertia and in 401k Participation in Savings Behavior by Bridget C. Madrian and Dennis F. Shea. From the introduction.
1: In this paper, we analyze the 401k savings behavior of employees in a large U.S. corporation before and after an interesting change in the company 401k plan. Before the plan change, employees who enrolled in the 401k plan were required to affirmatively elect participation. After the plan change, employees were automatically enrolled in the 401k plan immediately upon hire unless they made a negative election to opt out of the plan. Although none of the economic features of the plan changed, this switch to automatic and immediate enrollment dramatically changed the savings behavior of employees.
0: I would certainly call a shift from 37% participation to 86% participation a dramatic shift. However, as Mayer and Shea note, there was a downside.
1: For the new cohort, 80% of 401k contributions are allocated to the money market fund, while only 16% of contributions go to stock funds. In contrast, the other cohorts allocate roughly 70% of their 401k contributions to stock funds, with less than 10% earmarked for the money market fund.
0: The issue is that the money market fund was the default choice, which meant that while the new program helped people save more, it also led folks who would have chosen better performing funds to earn far less than they would have. Defaults are powerful. Just as Facebook, which is conducting a probably futile public relations campaign against Apple over iOS 14's impending app tracking
1: transparency requirement, Apple told Bloomberg, Apple defended its iOS updates, saying it was standing up for people who use its devices. Quote, Users should know when their data is being collected and shared across other apps and websites, and they should have the choice to allow that or not, end quote. an quote, Apple spokeswoman said in a statement, quote, app tracking transparency in iOS 14 does not require Facebook to change its approach to tracking users and creating targeted advertising. It simply requires they give users a choice, end quote. In fact,
0: users have had a choice for several years. Apple has given customers the ability to switch off their devices Identifier for Advertisers, IDFA, since 2012. What makes iOS 14 different is the change in defaults. Instead of users needing to turn IDFA off, every app has to explicitly ask for it to be turned on. And given the arguably misleading way that this tracking is presented by the media generally, and Apple specifically, both Facebook and Apple expect customers to say no. Indeed, Facebook won't even bother asking. Changing the defaults can change the course of a multi-billion dollar company. China Control and Quarantine. One year ago, on January 5th, 2020, Wuhan, Ube province's largest city, was set to host the third session of the 13th Ube Provincial People's Congress and the third session of the 12th Ube Provincial Committee of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, the two most important political gatherings of the year. Perhaps that is why the city reported no new cases of a mysterious respiratory illness that had started appearing the previous November for the following 11 days. Three weeks later, the entire city was locked down in a drastic attempt to contain the virus we now know as SARS-CoV-2. Last week, meanwhile, came a lockdown of another sort. From the New York Times.
1: A Chinese court on Monday sentenced a citizen journalist who documented the early days of the coronavirus outbreak to four years in prison, sending a stark warning to those challenging the government's official narrative of the pandemic. Zhang Zan, the 37-year-old citizen journalist, was the first known person to face trial for chronicling China's outbreak. Ms. Zhang, a former lawyer, had traveled to Wuhan from her home in Shanghai in February at the height of China's outbreak to see the toll from the virus in the city where it first emerged. For several months, she shared videos that showed crowded hospitals and residents worrying about their incomes. Ms. Zhang's trial at the Shanghai Pudong New District People's Court on Monday lasted less than three hours. The official charge on which she was convicted was picking quarrels and provoking trouble a vague charge commonly used against critics of the government. Prosecutors had initially recommended a sentence between four and five years. For all of the consternation in China about the initial
0: cover-up, Zhang's case is a reminder that controlling information for political purposes is China's default approach. It is worth noting, though, that the willingness to exert control can be useful, particularly during a pandemic. While Wuhan's lockdown drew the most attention, and some degree of emulation, that wasn't what actually stopped the virus's spread. The Wall Street Journal explained in March.
1: The cordon sanitaire that began around Wuhan and two nearby cities on January 23rd helped slow the virus's transmission to other parts of China, but didn't really stop it in Wuhan itself, these experts say. Instead, the virus kept spreading among family members and homes, in large part because hospitals were too overwhelmed to handle all the patients, according to doctors and patients there. What really turned the tide in Wuhan was a shift after February 2nd to a more aggressive and systematic quarantine regimen, whereby suspected or mild cases, and even healthy close contacts of confirmed cases, were sent to makeshift hospitals and temporary quarantine centers. The tactics required turning hundreds of hotels, schools, and other places into quarantine centers, as well as building two new hospitals and creating 14 temporary ones in public buildings. These centralized quarantines
0: were not optional, and they were effective. China had the coronavirus largely under control by late spring, and the economy has unsurprisingly bounced back. China is expected to be the only group of 20 countries to record positive growth for the year. The West's haphazard approach. The United States, along with Europe, it should be noted, has not done so well. Actually, that's being generous. By pursuing selective lockdowns and completely eschewing centralized quarantine, the West has managed to hurt its economies and kill its small businesses without actually stopping the spread of the coronavirus. At the same time, as Tyler Cowen argued in Bloomberg last May, centralized quarantines were never really a serious option.
1: There has been surprisingly little debate in America about one strategy often cited as crucial for preventing and controlling the spread of COVID-19. Coercive isolation and quarantine, even for mild cases. China, Singapore, and South Korea separate people from their families if they test positive, typically sending them to dorms, makeshift hospitals, or hotels. Vietnam and Hong Kong have gone further, sometimes isolating the close contacts of patients. I am here to tell you that those practices are wrong, at least for the U.S. They are a form of detainment without due process, contrary to the spirit of the Constitution and, more important, to American notions of individual rights. Yes, those who test positive should have greater options for self-isolation than they currently do. But if a family wishes to stick together and care for each other, it is not the province of the government to tell them otherwise.
0: Cowan's first paragraph makes clear that the views in the second are widely held. No politician that I know of, in the US or Europe, seriously argued for centralized quarantine, even though it was likely the only way to contain SARS-CoV-2. The very idea of governments locking up innocent civilians is counter to our default assumption that individual freedom is inviolate. That, though is why it is strange that so many have acquiesced to ever-tightening restrictions on information. It seems that over the last year, to have a pro-free speech position has become the exception. The default is to push for censorship, if not by the government, thanks to that pesky First Amendment, then instead by private corporations. And meanwhile, said private corporations, eager to protect their money-making monopolies, in the political sense, if not the legal one, are happy to comply. YouTube led the way declaring in April that it would ban any coronavirus content that contradicted the same World Health Organization that tweeted on January 14th that there was no human-to-human transmission, but most tech companies have since fallen in line. To be perfectly clear, I'm in no way denying the presence of huge amounts of misinformation, which, by the way, continue to circulate widely despite tech companies' best efforts. What concerns me is that this sort of dime-store authoritarianism is resulting in the worst possible outcome. See image. China's control of information is not ideal. The Wuhan cover-up is about as compelling an example as you will ever see of the downsides of information control. But at the same time, it would be dishonest to not recognize that authoritarianism can be effective in actually controlling a pandemic. The West, though, will neither do what it takes to contain the coronavirus, even as we flirt with information suppression at scale. What makes this nefarious is that the cost of the latter is often unseen. It is the ideas never broached and the risks never taken. But how do you measure opportunity cost? Vaccines and defaults. Here, the coronavirus again provides a compelling example this time in the form of Moderna's RNA vaccines. David Wallace-Wells wrote in New York Magazine in December.
1: You may be surprised to learn that of the trio of long-awaited coronavirus vaccines, the most promising, Moderna's mRNA-1273, which reported a 94.5% efficacy rate on November 16, had been designed by January thirteen. This was just two days after the genetic sequence had been made public in an act of scientific and humanitarian generosity that resulted in China's youngs and being temporarily forced out of his lab. In Massachusetts, the Moderna vaccine design took all of one weekend. It was completed before China had even acknowledged that the disease could be transmitted from human to human more than a week before the first confirmed coronavirus case in the United States. By the time the first American death was announced a month later, the vaccine had already been manufactured and shipped to the National Institutes of Health for the beginning of its Phase 1 clinical trial. This is, as the country and the world are rightly celebrating, the fastest timeline of development in the history of vaccines. It also means that for the entire span of the pandemic in this country, which has already killed more than 250,000 Americans, we had the tools we needed to prevent it. As Wallace Wells
0: notes, this does not mean that the Moderna vaccine should have, or could have, been rolled out in January. It does, though, provide a powerful thought experiment about opportunity cost. Opportunity cost is distinct from the cost normally calculated in a cost-benefit analysis. Those costs are real costs in that they are actually incurred. For example, if I want to buy a new sweater, it will cost me money. Opportunity cost, on the other hand, is the choice not made. To return to the sweater example, whatever funds I use to buy a sweater cannot be used to buy slacks. The slacks are the opportunity cost. In the case of the vaccine, the opportunity costs of not deploying at the moment it was developed are enormous. Hundreds of thousands of lives saved in the U.S. alone, millions around the world, and untold economic destruction avoided. Again, to be clear, I'm not saying this choice was available to us, and you can easily concoct another thought experiment where the vaccine goes horribly wrong. What makes this thought experiment worthwhile, though, is that it is such a powerful example of opportunity costs, and it is opportunity costs, the things not learned, that are the biggest casualty of defaulting towards information control instead of free speech. This isn't the only mistaken default. Another topic that received minimal discussion was the concept of human challenge trials, where individuals could volunteer and be richly compensated to be exposed to the virus to more quickly test the vaccination's efficacy. When I broached the idea on Twitter, plenty of folks were quick to cite the very real ethical concerns with the concept but few seemed willing to acknowledge the opportunity costs incurred by waiting a single day longer than necessary, which ought to present ethical concerns of their own. There was also no discussion of making the vaccine broadly available in conjunction with phase three trials, despite the fact that RNA-based vaccines are inherently safer than traditional vaccines based on weakened or inactivated viruses. Similarly, when I expressed bafflement that people weren't outraged by the FDA's delay in improving the vaccines, the response of many was to insist that the agency was rightly prioritizing safety. What, though, about the safety of those suffering from a pandemic that was accelerating? At every step, the default was a bias towards the status quo of no vaccine, no matter how great the opportunity cost may have been. What is most dispiriting, though, is this chart from Bloomberg. See image. As of this morning, only 30% of distributed vaccines have been administered. That's not quite as bad as it seems given the U.S. policy to hold back the second shot in reserve. itself a conservative decision that seems driven by the status quo default. But that still means millions of shots are unused and risk expiration. A major holdup has been strict prioritization protocols which prioritize equitable distribution over speed. It's another misplaced default. Technology and Opportunity At this point, many of you are surely muttering that this was the fastest vaccine development program in history and that the U.S., for all of its struggles, has already vaccinated 1.42% of its population, the third most in the world. Both are true and worth celebrating. At the same time, the timeline in that New York Magazine article is worth keeping in mind. The single most important reason these vaccines were developed so quickly was because of technological progress. This brilliant article explains how mRNA vaccinations work in computer programming terms, but the entire concept is built on years of work. The Harvard Health blog noted,
1: Like every breakthrough, the science behind the mRNA vaccine builds on many previous breakthroughs, including, 1. Understanding the structure of DNA and mRNA and how they work to produce a protein. 2. Inventing technology to determine the genetic sequence of a virus. 3. Inventing technology to build an mRNA that would make a particular protein. 4. Overcoming all of the obstacles that could keep mRNA injected into the muscle of a person's arm from finding its way to immune system cells deep within the body and coaxing those cells to make the critical protein. 5. Information technology to transmit knowledge around the world at light speed. Every one of these past discoveries, depending on the willingness of scientists to persist in pursuing their long-shot dreams, often despite enormous skepticism and even ridicule, and the willingness of society to invest in their research. Long-shot dreams, enormous
0: skepticism, and even ridicule certainly sound familiar to anyone associated with Silicon Valley. And there is an analogy to be made between how technology accelerated vaccine development, even in the face of conservative defaults, and how the technology industry broadly has driven U.S. economic growth for decades now, even in the face of stagnation elsewhere. What makes software so compelling to anyone ambitious is that one, the potential applications are limitless, and two, the limitations on creation are your own imagination, not external regulations. This certainly has its downsides, as anyone trying to get a software release out the door understands. You can add new features and fix bugs forever, because after all, it's just software. At the same time, you can build anything you want without asking for permission, and what could be more exciting than that? I'm reminded of this old Steve Jobs interview,
2: so the thing I would say is when you grow up, you tend to get told that the world is the way it is and your, your life is just to live your life inside the world, try not to bash into the walls too much, uh, uh, try to have a nice family life, uh, have fun, save a little money. Um, but life... That's a very limited life. Life can be much broader once you discover one simple fact, and that is everything around you that you call life was made up by people that were no smarter than you. And you can change it. You can influence it. You can you can build your own things that other people can use. And the minute that you understand that you can poke life and actually something will, you know, if you push in, something will pop out the other side, that you can you can change it, you can mold it, um... that's maybe the most important thing is to shake off this uh... Th- this uh... erroneous notion that life is is there and you're just gonna live in it versus embrace it change it improve it make your mark upon it um, i i think that's very important and however you learn that once you learn it uh... you'll want to change life and make it better because it's kind of messed up in a lot of ways Um, once you learn that, you'll never be the same again. Jobs
0: was talking about life in general, but the potential he articulates is much more easily grasped in software. What is notable is that it was the software-driven companies that performed the best throughout the pandemic. Perhaps the assumption that any problem is solvable is the muscle that can be developed in software and applied to the real world? Amazon is a striking example in this regard. The so-called tech company hired over 400,000 new people in 2020 as it brought its massive logistics network to bear in the face of overwhelming demand. No wonder many have been joking on Twitter that the company should be in charge of the vaccination rollout. Or, better yet, we have to figure out how to export the Amazon mindset beyond the world of technology. But to do that, we need new defaults. New defaults. Start with these three. First, it should be the default that free speech is a good thing, that more information is better than less information, and that the solution to misinformation is improving our ability to tell the difference, not futilely trying to be china Light without any of the upside. Second, it should be the default that the status quo is a bad thing. Instead of justifying why something should be done, the burden of proof to rest on those who believe things should remain the same. This sounds radical, but given the fact that the world is undergoing profound changes driven by the internet, it is the attempt to preserve the unsustainable that is radical. Third, it should be the default to move fast and value experimentation or perfection. The other opportunity cost of decisions not made is lessons not learned. Given the speed with which information is disseminated, this cost is higher than ever. The urgency of this reset should come from where all of this started, China. Dan Wang wrote in his 2020 letter.
1: This year made me believe that China is the country with the most can-do spirit in the world. Every segment of society mobilized to contain the pandemic. One manufacturer expressed astonishment to me at how slowly Western counterparts moved. U.S. companies had to ask whether making masks aligned with the company's core competence. Chinese companies simply decided that making money is their core competence, and therefore they should be making masks. The state council reported that between March and May, China exported 70 billion masks and nearly 100,000 ventilators. Some of these masks had problems early on, but the manufacturers learned and fixed them or were culled by regulatory action and China's exports were able to grow when no one else could restart production. Soon enough, exports of masks were big enough to be seen in the export data.
0: This, to be clear, was not the result of authoritarianism, but despite it, Taiwan exhibited the exact same sort of can do attitude alongside a free press, elections, and pig intestines in the legislature. China, meanwhile, is increasing control of the private sector. The latest example is Alibaba and Jack Ma, who was last seen in October criticizing the country's regulators. China proceeded to kill Ant Group's IPO in a signal to any other billionaires with big ideas about who was boss. And Ma's whereabouts are unknown. The U.S. can absolutely compete with this approach, not by imitating it, but by doing the exact opposite. Intentions versus outcomes. A few years after Madrian and Shea's landmark study, Richard Thaler, the Nobel Prize-winning economist at the University of Chicago, devised a new approach for 401k enrollments that sought to overcome the downside of default choices while preserving their upside. What I wanted to highlight, though, was this bit from the introduction of Save More Tomorrow, using behavioral economics to increase employee
1: saving. Economic theory generally assumes that people solve important problems as economists would. The lifecycle theory of saving is a good example. Households are assumed to want to smooth consumption over the life cycle and are expected to solve the relevant optimization problem in each period before deciding how much to consume and how much to save. Actual household behavior might differ from this optimal plan for at least two reasons. First, the problem is a hard one, even for an economist, so households might fail to compute the correct savings rate. Second, even if the correct savings rate were known. Hustles might lack the self-control to reduce current consumption in favor of future consumption. For whatever reason, some employees at firms that offer only defined contribution plans contribute little or nothing to the plan. In this paper, we take seriously the possibility that some of these low-saving workers are making a mistake. By calling their low-saving behavior a mistake, we mean that they might characterize the action the same way, just as someone who is 100 pounds overweight might agree that he or she weighs too much. We then use principles from psychology and behavioral economics to devise a program to help people save more.
0: I suspect a similar story can be told about our slide to defaulting that free speech is bad, that the status quo should be the priority and that perfect is preferable to good. These are mistakes, even as they're understandable. After all, misinformation is a bad thing. Change is uncertain and no one wants to be the one that screwed up. Everyone has good intentions. The mistake is in valuing intentions over outcomes to that end. The point of this article is not really to discuss the coronavirus or vaccinations. With regards to the latter, there's more to praise than to criticize. And I freely admit I'm not an expert about either. And yet, that isn't a reason to settle or to not examine our defaults. Why can't we accomplish other big projects in a year? What else can we build with so much broad benefit so quickly? And critically, what can we change about our psychology and behavior to make that happen? New defaults are the best place to start. The daily update is intended for a single recipient, but occasional forwarding is totally fine. If you would like to order multiple subscriptions for your team with a group discount, please contact me directly. Thanks for
2: being a subscriber, and have a great day.